0: When tragedy strikes, we have a tendency to turn the place of the disaster into the name of the event itself, Waco, Columbine, Chernobyl. It signals a stain on the earth, death that occurred so dramatically that it will be permanently tied to that location, But as long as that place remains, so will that event, an ever-present ghost from the past. And today we are talking about the military disaster to end all military disasters, where one city would see some of the most desperate warfare in human history. It's time for Stalingrad. This is the No one is competent podcast, the premier new history and comedy podcast dedicated to convincing you that everyone in power has no idea what they're doing. I'm Azalea here with my co-host
1: Jay uh, nice to nice to, um I was gonna say meet you all, but I suppose if you're on, if you're already on episode 10, I should hope you've listened to some of our previous episodes by now. but you're not episode 11, but whatever same difference
0: (laughs) jay Jay, i'm i'm hyped for this this is like you know i always thought that when we started this podcast we thought it was mostly gonna be battles and then like i'm really glad we diversified i want to do a lot of other stuff but i feel like every once in a while we need to prove to people that we can we, we can do a classic like and this is like history nerd 101 stuff like a super deep dive into like eastern front i mean you're
1: not uh you're not you're not the history uh youtuber and i suppose we are on youtube technically if you don't do something with the eastern front
0: (laughs) i mean do you want to be a history youtuber jay is that who you want to associate yourself with y'all y'all don't know but jahari's be throwing such mad shade on like 95 percent of all history youtubers whenever i bring up the subject like he has spite in his soul anyway we are again azalea and jaharis you can find me on twitter at azalea wyatt you can find jaharis at jaharis48 obviously those links are all in the descriptions of all of our stuff you're listening to us on Apple, on Spotify, on YouTube, or other locations. Uh, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review, five stars. Remember, this show has no sponsors and no advertising other than our own plug. So if you want to give back, please tell your friends, your co-workers, that guy who's popping around your house because you think he's like a stalker, but honestly, he really wants to admire your top-tier interior decorating. Tell him about the podcast. Other than that, we have an email account.
1: We do, yes, now will be one is competent at gmail.com. Thank you. I was in such a good role there. <laughs> I
0: just, like, froze up. The podcast is on Twitter, at not underscore confident. I want to highlight that email account because we have been getting some fire emails lately, some great questions. You know, Whenever you want us to elaborate on something, just hit us up there. You want to get in contact, you want to chat, or you want to some, share some salacious stories of incompetence that you've seen in your own workplace, your own local city government, or anything you've been investigating, you can go and tell us, tell us there. We can, uh, you know, we'll we'll keep everything on the down low. Another great way to get in touch with us other than our Twitter accounts is that if you're watching on YouTube or you just want to head over to the YouTube, you can leave comments, asking questions, and suggesting other episode topics. We always love to hear what people want to hear. And also, it helps us tremendously if you could like, subscribe, and just leave a comment, even if it's like yada yada doodle doodle. Uh, That helps feed a sacrifice to the algorithm gods and get this podcast into more ears and also on the YouTube you can find uh, many helpful charts, pictures, and diagrams to kind of bring this more to life if you're more of a visual learner. Other than that, our music is provided by the legendary Sam Bryce and I'm not feeling a lot of banter today, Jay. I think we should just hop into the
1: episode. Yeah, might be for the best
0: this is this is a working man's episode this is this is stalingrad this is a serious i am gonna make so many jokes about one of the most grim and bleak <laughs> episodes of all of human history like i have like you, you this is like like i guess i'm legally the funny one of the podcast and i have and i'm looking at it at at these casualty counts and i'm just like Yeah, I can. Oh, right, they're Nazis. Okay, okay, I can, I can work this. So, what was the Battle of Stalingrad?
1: Now, you know, while some of the topics we've covered in this podcast are a bit obscure, I imagine the Battle of Stalingrad is something that most of our listeners have at least heard about. This was a brutal five-month campaign. That was waged between the armies of Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union from August 1942 to February of 1943. And, you know, this would go down as one of the most famous battles of the entire Second World War. But before we get to the battle itself, it's important to discuss why it first took place and what the context of it was.
0: Now, this was a part of the wider invasion by the Nazis of the Soviet Union, which is called Operation Barbarossa. Now, we could spend a long time telling you about how Operation Barbarossa was planned and how the first few months went down, but luckily, we already did that in episode 10 of the No One Is Competent podcast. So, if you want to know all of the ins and outs, shoots and shouts, the, the hot, steaming gossip and the salacious tidbits about Operation Barbarossa go did that we we have already done the homework but just to refresh and and get everybody up to speed the german army invaded the soviet union on june 22nd of 1941 and it does so with three army groups army group north central and south and they're all pushing eastwards in their respective sections of the front line By December of that year, the Germans had captured Ukraine, surrounded Leningrad, and were just miles from central Moscow. But, very importantly, they had failed to decisively crush the Red Army, and their attack ground to a halt in the face of dwindling resources, Soviet resistance, and the onset of winter. This is, for those who remember, during the Battle of Moscow.
1: Yeah, and while the Germans had spent most of 1941 on the offensive, That onset of winter and the Battle of Moscow would see the Red Army take the initiative and push back against the Germans. You know, we had mentioned briefly in our last episode the Soviet winter offensive, but we kind of downplayed its size. Um, The Soviet Army, starting in December, launched a series of attacks across the front line, and that was a part of a broad offensive that would last until the end of March. Um, in the south, the Russians managed to punch a hole in the German line near Kharkov in Ukraine. And near Moscow, the Soviets also almost completed the encirclement of a good chunk of Army Group Center. And in the north, in fact, an entire German corps was briefly encircled entirely.
0: So remember, a large factor contributing to German defeats was that they had stretched their supply lines... Winter had set in without the proper gear for it, and they really didn't have any reserves of their army to fight back and refresh their armies. Meanwhile, the Soviet reserves had all kind of gotten there. They knew the terrain and the climate better, and once they could all sort of get their act together and counterattack as a group, it made it a lot easier for them to fight back. But... As the winter of early 1942 draws to a close, the vast front lines left the generals of both sides of a conundrum. What would be the best course of action for fighting the coming season? And while you're planning out what you're going to do, you also have to try and anticipate what your enemy is going to do. You know, we have like hundreds upon hundreds of miles of territory that we're disputing here. Like, what th- th- This is, like, close to the size of, like, maybe counting out Florida and past, like, say, Massachusetts. This is the size of, like, most of the American eastern seaboard of, like, territory that these people are fighting over. Maybe a little smaller than that, but, th- you know, there's a lot of choices to be made.
1: Yeah, and it's very difficult choices to make. Now, so, probably worth looking at who are the people making those choices. Uh, Well, on the Soviet side, there was a new organization for the Soviet high command called Stavka, and Stavka had been formed by Stalin, and it consisted of both himself, obviously, as well as men such as the defense minister, Simon Tinochenko, and the head of the general staff, Georgi Zhukov. Now Stavka was basically tasked with handling pretty much the entire strategic planning for the uh, for the Soviet war effort. Now they had settled on the plan of exploiting their advances of the winter to complete the elimination of German salients, while keeping the bulk of their reserves near Moscow in expectation for a large scale attack on the city. Um, as a brief aside,
0: <laughs> new vocabulary word has appeared. What is a salient?
1: That's a very good question because a lot of the fighting on the Eastern Front will consist of fighting on or for salients. Um, a salient is basically something that's formed when you have, um, you know, say your army attacks the enemy's army. And you can imagine the front line being a long horizontal line, for example. Think of the uh, the Western Front in World War One, for a stereotypical example. But if you manage to make breakthrough in a specific isolated area of the front line, you can push into the enemy's front. And that'll form something that would almost look like a peninsula. You know, you can imagine Florida being a salient into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, And these salients would be formed pretty much consistently by both sides on the front line. And if you form one, you could use a salient to try to roll up the enemy's flank or encircle them from the rear. However, your salient would also be highly vulnerable to counterattack because it's surrounded on three sides by the enemy. Um, People might have heard of a famous battle called the Battle of the Bulge on the Western Front. And the bulge in question is a German salient.
0: I swear, like, you know, remember guys, Jay has done this at an academic level, a professional level. He's, he rolls with smart people all day. I I sometimes consider it my job uh, to be the stupid person in the room and remind him what people (laughs) have no idea of what he's talking about. Yes. It's always Um. useful. About every other of these podcasts, Jay will just, like, casually drop, like, a term or a date or, or, like, some sort of theory and just go, you know X, right? And I'm like, I have never heard of X (laughs) in my entire life. Now, I get him back by screaming at him about uh, a very obscure fighting game esport and uh, going on and on about the weird books I'm reading. So, don't worry, it evens
1: out. If Wyatt ever tries to convince you that any conversation with him is even, he's lying.
0: Meanwhile, on the German side, Hitler and his command had settled on a new plan of attack. Folks who listened to episode 11 will remember that Hitler had never been fully convinced of the idea that Moscow should be the focus of the German offense, and the events of the previous year seemed to convince them that he was right. So, here's the new plan. Army Group Center is going to mostly have a defensive role, kind of hold the line, and use North and South to basically chop up the Soviet state and to cut off various regions from each other, destroy the supply lines and whatnot. Up in the North, Army Group North is going to take Leningrad and cut the Murmansk Railway. Thus severing the Soviet ability to receive supplies from this Western allies via the Arctic convoys. We're not going to go into it a huge part, but remember, uh, Lin Lease is in full effect right now. And like a giant reason the Soviet Union has a fighting shot in this war is because the Americans are just flooding arms and cash into the country. And you should never let the tankies forget it. Yeah. Listen, I am not. Often, like, like I'm, I'm an anarchist. I don't like governments at all. I don't like the United States government. I don't like them right now. I don't like them then. But I do like being obnoxious <laughs> and pissing people off because I am a bad person. So just gonna take the time and opportunity to state back to back World War champs, and we ain't never <laughs> let nobody forget it. Oh, I hate existing. <laughs> Army Group South is driving down to the Caucasus. This is the region nestled between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, though frankly, if you don't know where the Caucasus are, I doubt you know where those seas are either. <laughs> uh, this is basically that sort of like cluster where Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan are nestled against Russia. Um, but obviously in 1842, it's all part of the Soviet Union. The main goal of this Southern Offensive is to seize the rich oil fields of the Caucasus. The Germans were in desperate need of oil as their reserves were running low. World War II is the war of resources. More than anything. Like it it is the resource war. And by taking the oil, they would not only strengthen their own position, but weaken that of the Soviets, who would thus be cut off from their primary source of the sweet, sweet black liquid.
1: Yeah, Hitler would go so far to even say that if, if he couldn't capture the oil fields of the Caucasus, he would have to end the war on the Eastern Front. Things didn't quite work out that way, but that just kind of shows the importance of these oil fields.
0: It's kind of like uh, when when Abraham Lincoln was like, I would like to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. Yes. <laughs> I love that quote. It's such a stupid but great quote. I don't know it's cracked
1: now during the spring and summer of 1942 the soviets attempted at exploiting the holes they had made in the german front line but this would lead to a series of resounding defeats at the hands of the german army um, the germans were able to effectively reconnect with all encircled german forces and in turn cut off and encircle sever- several soviet salients
0: several soviet salients <laughs> several soviet salients <laughs> several soviet salients several soviet salients following these exchanges the germans launched operation case blue which let me just say is like four tiers down from operation barbarossa in cool naming conventions and this is by the way definitely the single reason that they lost the war they stopped (laughs) naming their things cool Just like Operation Barbarossa one year prior, Case Blue was met with seemingly immediate success as Army Group South advanced at a rapid pace from Ukraine into southern Russia. The exact opposite of what's going on in the region today. This (laughs) rapid pace was made possible in part by the relative weakness of the Soviet forces in the area, as most reserves were kept near Moscow in preparation for the attack Stalin thought was coming. Uh, it's like fucking. What's his name? Uh, Putin yes. puts like almost two hundred thousand troops to the Ukrainian border, and Ukraine just posts a meme about it <laughs> because this is the
1: timeline. Yes. Oh, this is the timeline. This is the timeline. Now, the success of Army Group South gave Hitler high hopes for victory. A confidence that would lead to him making the decision, against the advice of his generals, in late July to split Army Group South into two separate forces. Um, These would be Army Group A, tasked with driving south into the Caucasus, you know, the original goal, and Army Group B, which would be tasked with simultaneously advancing east to the Volga River and attacking the city of Stalingrad.
0: Now, anyone who's been to military school for four weeks and has read, like, the first 100 pages of some Carl von Clausewitz knows that this is, like, the technically incorrect play of splitting things up. But, you know, Hitler's riding right high here. He he's, hasn't been wrong yet, and uh, everyone around him is a little bitch, and they should just trust the Fuhrer to make all the correct decisions. It's going to be great. Yeah. Now, the theory here is by seizing the Volga, Army Group B would protect Group A's flank and stop the supply of goods from the Western Allies that are being set around the Caspian and up the Volga River. This route is one of the three main routes connecting the United Kingdom and the United States with the USSR. Now, if you wanted to cut that route off in the Volga, you need to take the largest city on the Volga which is named Stalingrad. The city is a railway hub connecting the oil fields of the south and it also contained factories important for the Soviet war effort. But by dividing up their forces the Germans put a severe strain on their already overstretched supply lines and risked being defeated in detail by Soviet foes which is what in the novel business we call foreshadowing <laughs> i'll remind y'all i ain't a podcaster i spend most of my time writing books that none of you are allowed to read because i am a perfectionist and i am very paranoid
1: now the soviets on the other hand realized the importance of defending the volga and also noted that if the germans could be drawn into a prolonged fight for Stalingrad. They could tie hundreds of thousands of German troops down, fighting for near miles of territory.
0: Just to, uh, I just looked it up, uh, because I was curious. Those of y'all, um, who are doing your extra research might take some keen notice and notice that, like, well, Stalingrad is not a place that exists today. Uh, and that is not because this battle totally wiped it off of <laughs> the face of the earth uh, before the uh the soviets got to uh sovietizing everything and then after the usSR fell the city is named v- Volgo Volgograd it looks so easy Volgograd it looks so easy and yet oh, I can't do it I can't do anything Volgograd Volgograd who who, who gives a shit um, I don't respect the Slavic peoples. Uh, I do.
1: So, if any Slavic listeners, do not cancel me. Uh, cancel Azalea.
0: I'm, I'm just kidding. I love the Slavs. They be <laughs> squatting. Uh, Eurobeat is pretty okay. Um, I I often, um, bust that while, um...
1: Really just doubling down do on the stereotypes. the Poles count as
0: Slavs? I really like they Polish do. sausages. <laughs>
1: We're all just going with all the Do stereotypes. The Russians
0: make food? Like, what's like a famous
1: Russian dish?
0: Pierogi? Stroganoff? I,
1: stroganoff! I love Stroganoff. Probably gonna get hate mail from somebody being like, pierogi was invented in Poland or something like that, but um, whatever.
0: Remember, kids. If you're ever tempted to be racist, just remember, food exists. <laughs> which is the best reason to not be racist. Places and peoples have cool food.
1: Yeah. Now, oh, Jay, <laughs> can we the fucking next bullet point? <laughs> All right. <laughs> the next bullet point. Now, at this point, uh, it's kind of worth going into who exactly is calling the shots on both sides. Um, due to the sheer size of military operations during World War II in general, and on the Eastern Front in specific and neither the German nor the Soviet army was led by a single individual. The decision-making process ran from generals in the field all the way up to their counterparts in the high commands and up to Hitler and Stalin themselves. Uh, That being said, there are a few leaders we can focus on for this episode. Starting with the Germans, uh, it's worth mentioning a, a man who we've talked about before in our previous episode about Barbarossa. That being a General Friedrich Paulus.
0: Paulus, the boy. <laughs> the the voice of reason for episode 10. I'm sure he was a great guy that you guys should all stand.
1: Um, I don't know about that. <laughs> he was a Nazi.
0: <laughs> but yeah, that, that's the point I, I was trying to make, <laughs> is that Paulus was kind of our, like, coincidental good guy yeah. for episode 10, but dude, dude was a fucking Nazi. Yeah. Let's, let's calm down. <laughs> yeah.
1: Now, central to Army Group B's attack on Stalingrad was the German 6th Army, and its commander, Friedrich Paulus. Now, Paulus had a reputation of being an excellent general staff officer. Someone who was home looking at numbers, analyzing plans, and coming up with options for other generals.
0: This is also called a dork.
1: Yeah, you can imagine if he was alive today, he would be playing Europa Universalis or Hearts of Iron. (laughs) That's the sort
0: of person we're talking about. Hey, my little cousin plays Hearts of Iron. That's not a bad game. (laughs) And he is a dork, so moving on.
1: Now, all this being said, he had no real experience commanding a unit larger than that of a battalion, which is roughly 500 to 1,000 men, in the field prior to being promoted as head of the 6th Army, which for context was roughly 250,000 men.
0: Hey, we learned it on the job. It's all good. It's
1: all good. He got this job mostly as a result for the high demand of officers on the front line of the war that was continuing to expand. And also due to the fact that a close associate of his, uh, Field Marshal Walter von Reichenau, was the overall commander of Army Group South.
0: Good pronunciation on that von Reich now. Obviously, I have no idea what the correct pronunciation was, but you said it with uh, with a confidence that...
1: (laughs) The confidence that comes from studying German, like, 11 years ago and having forgotten all of it, so I probably got it wrong. (laughs) I mean,
0: that's me with French. Yeah. But for those of y'all who listened to our last episode, you might remember as Paulus was the guy who ran the war games on the invasion of the USSR back in 1940. remember those games came to the conclusion that a german victory was far from assured paulus was the skeptic in spite of his reservations he did ultimately support the invasion of the ussr mainly due to his faith in the decision-making abilities of those above him mostly hitler because again the guy is a nazi and he's stupid as fuck.
1: yeah now, the German 6th Army, which would be the main force assailing Stalingrad, uh, consists of about 250,000 men, 740 tanks, 1,200 aircraft, and 7,900 7, artillery pieces.
0: And in an interesting coincidence, that's basically the same population as the city that I live in. So, like, and, and fuck it, we would have done better. Equal amounts of artillery, no way too. way better than these. these <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Now, Army Group B as a whole contained both the 6th Army, the 2nd Army, the 4th Panzer Army, the Italian 8th Army, and the Romanian 3rd and 4th Armies. Remember, the Eastern Front is a very big force. <laughs> um, yeah, but all of these forces would be deployed elsewhere along the front line.
0: Is, um, is the 6th Army like the northmost or the southmost or are they on, are, are they surrounded by their fr- allies or are they kind of like out on a side uh, they're
1: about in the center
0: okay so well, well that bodes well yeah now on the soviet side they're beginning to recognize that the germans were planning an attack on stalingrad you know they see all the forces moving and a new front command was formed under general andre ermenko and supported by chief commissar nikita khrushchev Wait, that Nikita Khrushchev? Yep, that Nikita Khrushchev. (laughs) You love to see it.
1: Now, defense over the city of Stalingrad itself was given by Eremenko to the Soviet 62nd Army, led by a general by the name of Vasily Churikov. Now, Churikov, in some ways, was the archetype of a a Red Army general. He was the son of a peasant, he joined the Reds during the Civil War, and worked his way up the ranks. Uh, You love to see it. Yeah, that being said, uh, Chuykov is sometimes stereotyped as a brutish brawler in con- in contrast to the more academic and refined palace. Um, you know, this kind of feeds into a lot of stereotypes we have of the Eastern Front. We think of kind of like the very smart and erudite Germans versus the uh, you know, vodka-swilling, almost barbarian-like Soviets. But um.
0: It's also very important to remember that almost all of those stereotypes were set by <laughs> former Nazis who, for some reason, we let write tons of this history after the war.
1: Yeah, it's kind of similar to the reputation General Grant will get after the U.S. Civil War. But, um, but Chuykov, to his credit, was actually an exceptional student at the Frunze Military Academy. Um, And he became fluent in Chinese after being sent on multiple occasions to serve as an attaché to the then-Soviet-backed nationalist forces in that country.
0: Wait, the Soviets backed the nationalists?
1: Yeah, actually, uh, throughout the 30s, the Soviets were generally backing the nationalists. They didn't really think the communists had much of a shot of winning. Um, Eventually, they would switch sides, but that wouldn't happen until later. Indeed, by by 1939, Churikov was serving as an advisor to Chiang Kai-shek's national government in his fight against the Japanese. And he would remain in this position until being recalled by the Soviet Union in early 1942. Because, you know, the Soviets were kind of being invaded.
0: Remember, on the invading side, Polis is coming in with a quarter of a million men. But the forces defending Stalingrad itself consisted of roughly 55,000 men. While the total Soviet forces available in Stalingrad front at the start of the battle was roughly 187,000 men, 360 tanks, 337 aircraft, and around 7,500 artillery pieces.
1: Yeah, so you can see that the Germans do have the numerical advantage uh, across the board, though it's not a massive advantage. Now, considering that we've spent, uh, how long? Oh, only 35 minutes in the recording so far. That's not bad. Yeah, we're,
0: we're, <laughs> we're doing good, this one. This one, we're, we're getting to the main dish.
1: Well, only a half hour to, to actually talk about the Battle of Stalingrad. Uh, not bad. <laughs> now, by mid-August 1942, Army Group B, spearheaded by the Sixth Army, had reached the outskirts of the city of Stalingrad.
0: The city of Stalingrad itself is a long vertical ribbon stretching about 15 miles from north to south. The city hugs the west bank of the Volga River, with the corresponding eastern bank being far less developed. Due to this geography, the Germans could not simply advance around the rear of Stalingrad and encircle the city. Remember, when you're going to invade a city, which you shouldn't, but if you're going to, what you do is you encircle it on all sides, and you just kind of like... Push them in, box them out, cut off all the food and whatnot. But when you're on a big old river and the city's got these two distinct halves, that's that's not exactly possible. The halves, again, they're not equal. The western one is far more developed than the eastern one. But this just makes things awkward. Stalingrad is inhabited by over 400,000 civilians. While the Red Army would have been able to evacuate them across the Volga, Stalin ordered the civilian population to remain in place, because Stalin, and to assist the building up of the defenses of the city. Workers dug tank trenches, reinforced buildings, and built barricades. And Stalin had hoped that the presence of civilians would encourage the soldiers to fight harder for the city and provide more complications to the Germans, and there's no reason to
1: assume that he was wrong about that. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think he necessarily was wrong, but it would lead to, let's just say, very heavy civilian casualties. Because, you know, the the story of the Stahlgrad civilians kind of gets lost in a lot of tellings of the battle, and it's actually hard to find a lot of details about them. But you have to remember, throughout everything we're talking about today, there's still civilians in the city.
0: Yeah, so imagine your hometown, your city, being invaded while all of your friends from school, or from work, or like, the car dealership, the McDonald's, the, the... Okay, well, there ain't no McDonald's in the Soviet Union, which was, you know, the third nicest thing about it, but that's all still going down.
1: Yeah. Now, the Battle of Stalingrad began on August 23rd, and it opened with a massive aerial campaign conducted by the Luftwaffe. The Germans had air superiority and used it to fly over 2,000 bombing sorties over the city, burning out most wooden structures and reducing much of the city to rubble. Tens of thousands of the civilians would die in this brief but fierce bombardment.
0: The aerial bombardment would be followed by the ground advance, where the 6th Army would attack both the center and north of the city, while the 4th Panzer Army attacked the south. The German advance was met with rapid success. By early September, they had reached the Volga River north of Stalingrad, and they had almost entirely cut off Soviet forces inside the city from those to their south. By the 12th, the Soviet 62nd Army of General Chukov found itself trapped within the city of Stalingrad, with only the Volga saving them from a complete encirclement. The Luftwaffe hat marauded above, destroying Soviet tanks and shooting at boats attempting to cross the river. It's it worth mentioning that the Volga River—this th- th- ain't no creek. This is a huge, like—I mean, I don't know exactly how large it is, but it's a big river. If you've ever crossed the Mississippi River, it's—it's it's in the same class as that, as like. Crossing it is an event, and especially for a pre-industrial society, or an industrial society where you're getting shot at constantly, is, is not a trivial task.
1: No. So now on the surface, things seem to be going Germany's way by September 12th. The most rapid period of their advance, however, was coming to a close. And from this point on, the nature of the fight would swing in the Soviets' favor. General
0: Paulus, analyzing the situation like the book boy he is, comes to the conclusion that he does not have enough men to capture the city itself. Furthermore, as the bombings have reduced much of the city's infrastructure to rubble, he and many other generals viewed clearing out the city as unnecessary.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, they can just sit outside, and the city is mostly useless at this point.
0: Yeah, all the factories, uh, moving stuff through through roads—you you can't do that anymore. So, yeah. like, you know, what's this? It ain't worth the blood.
1: Yeah, Hitler, however, had other plans. Uh, Hitler had fact expected Stalingrad to have already been forced into submission by the bombardment. He would actually travel to the Ukraine and would meet with General Paulus in uh, minutes on September eleventh. During that meeting, Hitler told Paulus that the city must be taken. Paulus requested reinforcements and was denied that request. Paulus then pointed out that the left flank of the 6th Army would be severely exposed, to which Hitler angrily responded by saying that was not a problem, and the advance into Stalingrad must begin tomorrow, the 12th of September.
0: There's no way I'm not inserting the, like, angry Hitler pointing (laughs) at the thing movie shot (laughs) here. Now,
1: coincidentally, just three days after Hitler and Palace's meeting in Ukraine, Georgi Zhukov would meet with Stalin in Moscow and propose his own idea. The Soviets would draw the Germans into a fight for the city while amassing their forces in preparation to attack the 6th Army's flanks and encircle it. Stalin was a bit wary of the idea, but he gave it his approval nonetheless. And this kind of does um, sort of uh, show one of the facets of the Eastern Front, where Hitler will increasingly meddle in the decision of his officers, while Stalin, after the first year, tends to take a little bit more of a hands-off approach to managing his, uh, his forces.
0: Delegation. In the military world, we call this delegation. If you want to call, say, someone's legs, you want to shit-talking, you say that it's a hands-off approach. If, if you're <laughs> praising them, you say they're an expert at delegating. Now, these two things mean the exact same thing. They're just differently connotated because the English language is beautiful. Yes. So, as per Hitler's orders, the Sixth Army is going to begin their advance into Stalingrad proper on September the 12th. Now, the Germans had hoped for their aerial bombardment to break the spirits of the city. Uh, famously, that was totally what happened to the British. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah. so they they definitely had good logic here. <laughs> but instead, the rubble it created would turn into a nightmare for the Germans. Their tanks had trouble moving through the streets, strom of blown apart concrete and metal, while Soviet soldiers and civilians used the mangled material to make barricades, traps, and hiding spots.
1: Additionally, the soldiers of the Red Army set up fortified positions in houses, stores, and even the city's massive grain silo. Entire apartment blocks were turned into fortresses. Anti-tank guns were hidden in the basements with their barrels pointing out of openings cut out on the street level. Soldiers would be stationed throughout the building's rooms, While snipers and mortars occupying the upper floors, ready to fire on any Germans they spawned, the sewers were used to move troops covertly from one location to another.
0: It's probably, like, this is the city war. Yes. In all of human history, this is the modern city war. And, like, like, think about this happening in New Orleans, in New York, in Atlanta, like, we are about to witness block to block house to house and and later we will get into room to room fighting for every freaking inch and the entire city is going to get remodeled and then they're going to fight over their those newly made rooms and roads and spaces yeah see trukov's plan was to hold on as long as possible and keep his men right up next to the germans by hugging the enemy, so to speak, German planes and artillery would not be able to support their ground forces without risking hitting their own men. I'm going to quote here, but from an account by Cadet Antoli Grigorievich Maris. Mar- I got through Grigorievich, and then I fuck up. I off. think it's Mareshko Ma- Mareshko I could be wrong. <laughs> um, so, so this is just a a, a grunt soldier who served in the in the you know
1: he well, actually become a general. He actually ended up becoming a general after the war, but yes, at this point he's just okay, a Okay,
0: so a, distingu- a distinguished hero of the, <laughs> of, of the Red Army. The Germans had those storm groups, but their resolve was far from ours. Our last soldier standing would still fight to his last bullet, but they were always in groups. Alone, a German wouldn't fight, and before the Volga or the Don, they were used to advancing. First the planes would bomb, then the artillery, then the tanks, and only after them the infantry. That was the mass approach they kept at Stalingrad, too. But there they have to deal with high-rise buildings, solid brick, and all their sea wave, powerful as it was, broke down into rivulets. The buildings, like wave breakers, broke them, and they had to take the streets, where they were shot at by... From every building. And that's what's important. And what's important is that the tanks were afraid to go deeper. And the infantry wouldn't advance without them. And it turned out this way. they do the artillery preparation. What would give us a chance is the strategy of closing in. Introduced by Chuikov. Cutting the distance to a minimum. So basically what he's saying there is that the tanks can't go forward and the... You know, military, the infantry, they don't want to go in without the the tanks. So they're like, okay, well, let's set up the artillery. But then we're not going to give them the option to set up the artillery. This is classic good strategic thinking. Don't let your opponent play their game plan.
1: Yeah. Now, all this meant that as the Germans advanced to the city, they were faced with a task far removed from the fast-moving combat that characterized much of their previous experience during the war they would have to fight for every single realm of every single building. Poland had been conquered in 28 days, but it was quipped that in Stalingrad it would take 28 days just to conquer a few houses. As an example of this, the Great Grain Silo of Stalingrad would become one of thousands of small battlefields scattered throughout the city. For four days, the Germans assailed it, repeatedly turned back by fierce resistance from its defenders. Finally, on September 21st, it was captured by the 6th Army. Based on the resistance they had uh, received, they expected to find the bodies of thousands of Soviet defenders in the silo. Instead, they found that it was being defended by merely 38 men.
0: As the redneck of this podcast, I I have... Because there's just a light going off in my head. I'm sure it it wasn't filled with grain. But do not go in a grain silo. (laughs) Yeah, Like, it looks like you can walk on the grain. And it looks cool and fun. And I know it's like a a fun-shaped, like, building. Do not go in there. Every year, way more people than you think die in grain silos. They are very very dangerous but anyway structures throughout the city treated hands sometimes dozens at a time sometimes the same week sometimes the same day occasionally the front line would exist in the building itself and here i'm going to quote from captain gerhard munch of the german army we're gonna munch on some writings from munch The Russians broke into our house in the second or the third day as we were sitting in the front of a building. They had blown a large hole in the cellar and then they showed up with a large combat patrol in the same building we were in. We were defending the first floor and the floors above it. The Russians had occupied half the cellar. It was one of the oddest, most peculiar experiences. We sat in the same house. These enormous boxes were about a hundred meters wide. We had half, the Russians had the other half. And between us, there was this large room. It must have been a sort of dining room. From October to the end of January, we stayed put in the same spot. Germans and Russians in the same house. When the Russians ate, we couldn't disturb them. It would immediately become uncomfortable for us if we did that. We knew they were starting their dining period when we heard the clattering of pots and pans. So at that point, there would be peace and quiet. And when we ate, they had to stop fighting too. One had to accept that existence side by side. Well, both sides dealt very well with the situation, you have to admit. Up until the end phase, when the Russians started using snipers, they ru- and they ruled our area. We could no longer go there during bright daylight, even on errands, or make a report. Nothing. Only in the middle of the night when it was dark, four a.m. was when we could go outside. So for four months, they're just like, <laughs> the, like like twelve meters from you is is the enemy, and they're just hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> is isn't there like a saying? It's like, uh, you know, we, we secured the kitchen, but then they they took the dining room. Yeah,
1: yeah, and that's something that you know will happen on numerous occasions. And as uh, Captain Minch's story also alludes to, uh, Soviet snipers would make the city their hunting ground. Their achievements were listed at length in Soviet army newspapers and bulletins published as the mantle took place. Vasily Zietsev, 149 kills. Nikolai Ilyin, 185 kills. Anatoly Chekhov, 17 kills in two days. By publishing the accomplishments of their snipers, the Soviets turned them into heroes, role models for whom even the most common soldiers in Stalingrad could aspire to. I must mention
0: that that was not the highest sniper kill count of the war, or even that front, as that's probably held by Ludmila Pavlochenko, uh, a Ukrainian lady.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and, you know, this more inspirational Soviet propaganda coincided with a more brutal way of keeping soldiers at the front. And sort of thinking of uh, you can sort of think of it as a carrot and a stick the deserters even commissars and officers were shot as per Chulikov's orders one of his support really quick what are commissars so the commissars were basically the political officers embedded within the red army and they would keep you know the soldiers uh, politically aligned with the with the goals of you know the soviet state um, they would often be in charge yeah. of You know, a lot of the PR, a lot of um, recreation, propaganda, stuff like that.
0: And and these guys within the Red Army are are, are famously just hated. Yeah. Everyone hates them. Yeah,
1: because, you know, you're some, you know, lieutenant or something trying to do your job, and there's a commissar who's not necessarily from a military background telling you how to do things. Now, one of Trikov's subordinates would even threaten to enact the ancient Roman practice of decimation as punishment for cowardice. Uh, this, for those who don't know, is when you would just kill one in every ten men in a unit as punishment for the actions of some specific individuals.
0: Yeah, because the word decimation means destroying one-tenth, even though that is not at all how we use it today.
1: Yeah. All this meant that once Soviet soldiers were on the western bank of the Volga, they were there for good.
0: Yeah, there ain't no leaving except in a body bag. Yes. You you probably ain't doing that either. Bodies are probably just gonna lay there. So while this is going on, Hitler goes so far as to declare to the rest of the government that the city had essentially been taken. But as we've already said, that is uh, far from true. As the fighting drew on, both sides deployed even more assets into the melee. German soldiers from other units near Stalingrad poured into the city to back up Hitler's declaration. Soviet ferries shuffled reinforcements across the Volga while under fire from the Luftwaffe. Artillery on both sides, including the famous Katyusha rocket launchers pounded positions throughout the city. Meanwhile, the Soviets amassed troops east of the Volga in preparation for a massive operation. By early November,
1: the situation in the city was truly bleak. Hitler remained ever more committed to taking and holding it. Perhaps it was due to his ego being in control, preventing him from realizing that he made a mistake, or perhaps it was due to the symbolic nature of the city itself, named after his Soviet nemesis. Halder had already been fired by Hitler in September, uh, those of you who was uh, to our episode will remember Halder as the head of the uh, German Army High Command, before his failure to take Stalingrad, and now other generals found themselves routinely being threatened by the Fuhrer. So, on the ground, the 6th Army continues
0: to grind slowly onwards, even reaching the Volga River in parts of the city by mid-November. We. We, you know, obviously, eventually, the Germans are going to lose, and we kind of talk about how miserable it was for them. But at this point, they're still technically gaining ground. But German morale was low, partially because, you know, a lot of them had seen maybe, you know, your friend pop out out of a sewer or a foxhole or just a house on the street and get their uh, brains blown out. Also, winter's coming in, and at this point, they remember from last year what winter was like and is. is, is it
1: ain't good. It's not good. <laughs> yeah, the Soviet 62nd Army wasn't really doing much better. You know, they were clinging for life in the remains of Stalingrad. That being said, the grim nature of their struggle proved to be a bit of a rallying cause for the surviving defenders. For the Soviet troops that had turned into sort of Russian Verdun, land that could not be lost due to the sacrifices that had gone into holding it.
0: The 62nd Army's perilous nature, however, was part of the Soviet plan. The vast majority of Soviet reinforcements were amassing in the region were mostly kept east of the Volga, away from German eyes, and the slow but continuous retreat of the Soviet defenders kept the hope for victory alive in the Germans, drawing ever more German soldiers into the city.
1: Yes, as a result of both Stavka's planning and Hitler's orders, the German 6th Army found itself in a situation that was very perilous, to say the least. Almost the entire army had been drawn into Stalingrad, and its flanks were thus now protected primarily by their Italian, Romanian, and Hungarian allies. Uh, Those forces really did not have the same amount of heavy weaponry that the Germans have. They have far fewer tanks, what tanks they have are inferior in quality, and they don't have much artillery. Additionally, while the Volga had been reached in parts of the city itself, further north and south of Stalingrad, the Soviets still had control over the river.
0: So two points here: one, remember uh, Chuikov's in charge of the se- of the 62nd Army itself, uh, and Svaka's
1: is the guy uh, St- uh, above him, yeah, right? St- Stavka is the just a name for the Soviet high command. It's like their Pentagon.
0: Yeah, alright, I'm, I'm I'm. trying my best. But also, uh, remember, when we say the Nazis this, the Nazis that, the Germans ain't, ain't alone in this front or in this war. And uh, you should never let anybody uh, forget that. Now, is this very situation of the Germans being packed tighter and tighter into the city as the Soviets inside the city retreat, that everything would go downhill incredibly and dramatically fast. On November 19th, they would put their plans into action. See, ever since Zhukov proposed to Stalin his idea for an encirclement of the 6th Army back in September... Soviet troops have been pouring into the region. Remember, they've been sitting east of the Volga, out of sight. And on that morning of the 19th, over a million Soviet personnel began a massive pincer offensive, codenamed Operation Uranus, attacking north and south of the city in what was a textbook double envelopment, which is,
1: you know, just enveloping the enemy from both sides.
0: An envelopment is when you basically go at them. Yeah. And, yeah. And, 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 like, isn't it like specifically, I know this comes from like horseback cavalry terminology, right? Yeah. Like where you, like, go through their lines. So, like, your soldiers and their, their your guys and their guys are, like, in the
1: same spot. Yes. Yeah, so and you kind of go through so like their lines run- and turn in on, on them. Now, the Germans weren't com- completely off guard, their reconnaissance blades had spotted Soviet soldiers preparing for their attack. But Paulus and the other generals could not do much to act on the situation due to Hitler's orders. After the attack began, Paulus put in the almost immediate request for his army to withdraw from the city and retreat to the west. And this request actually received the backing of the German Army High Command, but it was firmly denied by Hitler. Those
0: Romanian, Hungarian, Italian, and remaining German forces performed. Protecting the 6th Army's flank were easily swept aside by this million-man offensive. Remember, they just don't have the hardware. And by the 22nd of November, the two prongs of the Soviet attack met up to the west of Stalingrad. So, like, that's where the Germans had started. And the German 6th Army now found itself completely encircled, trapped in a city they were trying to conquer.
1: Yeah, so it would essentially be a reversal of their fortunes almost completely. Now this would lead to a series of relief attempts on the part of the Germans. Um, you know, Soviet encirclement meant that the 6th Army, which had already been running low on supplies, was now set for a winter of starvation within the confines of Stalingrad. Few in the German army doubted that to be the case. However, Hermann Göring, the rather infamous head of the Luftwaffe, who at this point in the war was already seen by most of his subordinates to basically be a drug-addled buffoon, managed to convince Hitler that the Luftwaffe would be able to supply the army from the air.
0: We don't have time to go into the narcotics culture of the Nazi state. It's sometimes exaggerated but um let's just say a lot of people uh, including hitler himself uh very high up were um under the influence during a lot of their decision making <laughs>
1: Herman been that it was more
0: of a more of an opiate situation or well actually whatever his doctor felt like giving him on the day it turns out when you're like total economic status and even like your life is dependent on whether or not one particular guy ...feels good on a particular day, you tend to ensure that he feels good. And if that means, you know, juicing him up full of
1: painkillers and meth,
0: that yeah, whatever gets the job done.
1: Yeah. It was estimated that between 500 and 700 tons of supplies would have to be transported into the city each day... ...to keep the roughly 270,000 Germans tramped within it functional... After weeks of ongoing airlift throughout December 1942, the best the Luftwaffe could manage was about 80 tons per day. So not enough. The Luftwaffe's flights would provide some Germans, uh, some of the wounded, some of the foreign specialists, etc., with the ability to escape Stalingrad. The vast majority of the 6th Army soldiers would not be so lucky.
0: And, And that's them, like, punching small... Hole, temporary holes in the line and letting them get out, right?
1: Uh, well, this is the Luftwaffe, so it's the it's the German Air Force, basically just flying into the city, landing and improvised oh, airfields. They're, oh, they're
0: la- they can land, yeah, I mean, they, in the city.
1: Yeah, they they had you know, managed to clear out some land to make kind of like improvised airfields. Um, they could. Try wow, I
0: actually didn't expect that they would be able to do that.
1: Uh, And it's also, you know, propeller planes, like the type that were used in World War II, can actually land in very short distances. I mean, if you think of, like, an aircraft carrier, obviously an aircraft carrier is big for a ship, but it's pretty small compared to an airfield. And airplanes would land and take off those without any assistance from catapults, unlike, you know, modern jets.
0: So, on December 12th, the German Army would begin Operation Winter Storm. One last attempt at saving the 6th Army. The 4th Panzer Army of General Erich von Manstein attacked the Soviets. He hoped that if he could begin to develop a corridor into the Soviet lines, Paulus and the 6th Army could attempt to break out, reach the corridor, and retreat from Stalingrad. I'll note that that is uh, still against Hitler's orders. But (laughs) Manstein's plan relied on the 6th Army launching its own offensive to break out and reach his forces. He had assumed that Hitler would see reason in this, but on December the 18th, Hitler reaffirmed that the 6th Army would stay put in Stalingrad. It is a matter of major historical debate as to whether Winter Storm could have actually worked, and if Hitler had given a policy approval to break out, things would have gone differently. The general consensus among military historians today is that the Soviets had enough men to prevent it from working. But still, the lack of an attempt at breaking out essentially condemned the men of the 6th Army to their grim fates. Jay, you got any hot takes on that or are you generally following the... <laughs>
1: The the general consensus is pretty much correct. You know, at that point, the Soviets just have too many men. If Pallas had... It's almost four to one. Yeah, you know, if Pallas had tried retreating immediately at the start of um, Operation Uranus, they might have been able to make it out. But by December, it's too late. And it's worth noting that all of the roads are
0: wrecked. Moving troops in any quick time frame is incredibly difficult.
1: Now, by New Year's Day, 1943, the Soviet Union's victory at Stalingrad was clear for essentially all to see. The Soviet army under General Konstantin Rokossovsky was ordered by Stalin to prepare for a new operation, this time to eliminate the German pockets. Soviet artillery pounded the remaining airstrips of the German pocket. Rokhazovsky's men blasted propaganda over loudspeakers at German soldiers. The Soviets even built massive field kitchens, allowing the smell of hot food to reach the Germans. That's just a dick move. (laughs) That's just rude.
0: That's gotta be against the Geneva Convention. (laughs)
1: The Sixth Army was now, in comparison, living off of horse meat and the remains of their meager supplies, all while fighting off a ravenous rat population that proliferated thanks to the abundance of human corpses. On
0: January 8th, hey, that's my birthday, the Soviets sent envoys to Paulus, offering him terms for an honorable surrender. Paulus, of course, wires back to Hitler's approval to give him the freedom to accept these terms, But Hitler flatly refused. He armored the 6th Army into martyrdom. No surrender would be allowed. They were to fight and die for Germany. And with their offer gone and answered, the Soviet Army began Operation Ring on January 10th. Now it would be the Red Army's turn to push into Stalingrad and clear it of its defenders. Except this time, defenders were frostbitten, starving Germans.
1: That being said, the soldiers of the Sixth Army continued to put up fierce resistance. Pallas continued on his part to attempt to get Hitler's approval for him to surrender, but was shot down each time. By the end of January, Pallas ended up being more or less a broken man. You know, he had developed a sort of nervous tick. Um, this ended up turning into like a twitch that had spread to his face and he was basically confined to the headquarters of the Sixth Army which were located in what remained of one of Stalingrad's department stores. Basically, he has ceased to function as the leader of the Sixth Army. His subordinates took on that role, and he mostly remained to himself.
0: You know, we um we we saw this uh, in the. Uh, we, we saw some nervous breakdowns also occur in our um, Battle of the Little Bighorn episode. And in many ways, it can't be really blamed. You can't judge because it probably happened to you in this situation but you can definitely see the very like bookish sort of strategic think everything out um mind like Paulus really starting to go to shit when you have such illogical actions as hitlers interfering yeah. and how that could lead to a complete collapse in, in hope
1: yeah 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 and the, uh, the, the once singular german pocket had been divided up into a slew of smaller islands with individual groups of German soldiers choosing to surrender or fight on to the end on their own initiative.
0: This is basically the same thing that happens in the much smaller Battle Little Bighorn. (laughs) It's how all these battles end. You know, eventually things get chopped up, and, you know, there's command and control, there's a chain of command, but in the end, soldiers are all going to make their own decisions. Yeah. Now, on January 31st, Frederick Paulus received the news that he had been promoted by Hitler to the rank of field marshal. Da 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 da, da, da. And the implication of this promotion was clear to Paulus and his subordinates. No German or Prussian field marshal had ever been taken alive by the enemy. Paulus was being ordered to commit suicide. This final time, however, Paulus refused Hitler's implied order. The same day the Red Army reached the apartment's door, Paulus and his officers surrendered, and they were taken captive by the Soviets. All remaining German pockets would surrender by February the 2nd, bringing the Battle of Stalingrad to a close. In total, 91,000 Germans. So that's going from...
1: About 250,000?
0: 250, 270-ish thousand Germans to... Now we have 91,000 Germans were taken prisoner by the Soviets in Stalingrad. Uh, Axis casualties for the entire campaign in total, you know, counting those other units and the 4th Panzer Division and the Hungarians, the Romanians, the Italians, that's in total 400,000 men. And the Soviets on the other side had suffered over one million military casualties. It's completely impossible to nail down a precise number. You see, hundreds of thousands of these were civilians who were lost throughout the battle. And though we don't really go into it, I want you to imagine, because it's logical, that there were surely plenty of civilians picking up whatever scavenged arms or any weapons they could to defend their homes and their uh, schools their places of worship and, and places where they played and where their children played uh, during this battle yeah
1: you know actually uh thousands of them during the battle especially during the early phases will actually be deported by the germans um to labor camps in the ukraine and many of them will die there nazis gonna nazi yeah Now, the ramifications of Stalingrad were felt immediately throughout Europe. Operation Case Ballou, Hitler's audacious attempt at securing the vital oil fields of the Caucasus, were made immediately untenable as a result of the German defeat. Army Group A would instead be forced to extricate itself from the region altogether. The Battle of Stalingrad
0: was not the first German defeat of the war, but it was the first one of such a significant magnitude. For an entire German army group to be encircled and destroyed was unheard of. Much of history has written the Battle of Stalingrad as the turning point in the war. And arguably this is a bit of a mischaracterization of the Eastern Front. Hitler's decision to commit to a fight in Stalingrad and to prevent his men from retreating when they had the chance was a disastrous one. One that led to an entire army group being annihilated. However, not engaging in... Stalingrad would not have won Germany the war.
1: Yeah, had Army Group South simply progressed to the Caucasus without dividing in two, their flank would have been completely exposed to the Soviets, who would have almost certainly counterattacked and cut them off from the rest of the German lines. This alternate scenario probably would have seen fewer German casualties, as that much larger pocket could have been supplied or evacuated via the Black Sea, but it still would have been a German defeat. You know, in, in other words, there was no real winning move for Germany in 1942. A more effective campaign could have delayed their eventual defeat, but nothing feasible could have prevented it. The sheer disparity in numbers seen in Operation Uranus, remember the Soviets have over a million soldiers for their counterattack, points to the massive war potential of the Soviet Union.
0: We, in this episode ourselves, have pointed out the flaws in Hitler's thinking and his own stupidity, because it is very, very important to constantly and at every opportunity and says that Hitler was a very stupid man, but... Many historians and many fascist sympathizing historians have kind of twisted that reality to make it sound like the German generals in charge knew what they were doing, that they were smarter, that they were better. And this is the no one in his competent podcast. Even Paulus didn't fully realize that this was a mistake. They lost before they even started. They never should have been at Stalingrad in the first place. The entire invasion of the Soviet Union was a mistake. This is a continuation of our episode on Barbarossa. The fate of the German army was sealed in 1941 with their failure to knock the Soviet Union out of the conflict. Everything after that, Stalingrad included, was merely their fate, playing out in a grim and deadly manner. But that doesn't mean that the battle of stalingrad isn't a story worth telling it's an amazing story it's easy to say that the soviet managers and manpower resources to train logistics made their victory inevitable but that victory and painting it in that way totally obliterates and outstrips the absolutely heroic efforts of the Soviet soldiers and civilians on the ground. Who set traps. Who sniped staying in one place for days at a time. Who fought street to street. Who fought kitchen to kitchen. For the place that they loved and they called home. So yeah episode 11 in the books. This this might be the shortest one. I, I mean like we we did do the uh. We did do most of the Backstory. background <laughs> yeah. in the last episode, yeah. so that'll that'll make it a little a little easier. Um, I, ironic, considering that episode twelve is probably going to be our longest so far, possibly by a large margin. But that will determine on my editing ability. <laughs> <laughs> should we should we tell the folks what episode twelve is? It's so different from anything else we've done that I don't. I think, uh, it might be best to leave it up to mystery.
1: You, your, you, you're okay. your
0: choice, Jay. What should we do? We'll leave it a
1: mystery. We'll leave, uh, leave some suspense.
0: It lets you burn. Put that. Uh, put up. Put all that excitement into spreading the podcast. To all your friends tweeting about it, posting about it. Uh, remember, we're on social media. We're on Twitter at not underscore competent. I am at azalea wyatt Jay is at jahari's 48 those are all ways in the description you can email us at no one is competent at gmail.com tell us your podcast recommendations tell us what more you want to know about us and our podcast episode subjects and, you know, hang out with uh, your loved ones in this Christmas season. Go to church. It's probably like, what, the third week of Advent? Second week of Advent? When we, yeah, third week of Advent, probably, going into when we, when we uh launch this episode. I wonder how many people listening to this without knowing me are, are going to assume that I am a practicing nephotist Christian.
1: <laughs> probably not many. Yeah, I
0: do not have the vibe. No. Uh I guess while I'm here, I'll I'll sing off my uh my little um this is what I always say about Christmas. Jesus is not the reason for the season. Jesus is the gift. And you are the reason that the gift was given.
1: Fuck me. Fuck fucked it up! <laughs> god fucking, damn it!
0: I just threw a call. Jake, I'll show the podcast. I'm I'm done. T- tell tell all the people to have have a merry Christmas and to be good.
1: <laughs> you heard us. Have, have a merry Christmas Sam. and be good.